Okay, so thanks for coming out in the rain the day before Thanksgiving. I get, uh, that's why we don't do presentations today, because too many people are traveling, so that's why I go back to work. So, we were talking immunodeficiencies on, I don't even remember, a couple, of, a couple of days ago when I was last working, and we said that there were two types of immunodeficiencies, primary immunodeficiencies and secondary immunodeficiencies, and primary immunodeficiencies were the ones that were caused by some sort of genetic defect, and secondary immunodeficiencies were caused by uh, uh, all sorts of different things like disseminated cancers or immunosuppressive drugs or uh, sort of pathogens. We started talking about AIDS. We gave a little bit of a history of AIDS and we were left off looking at the statistics of AIDS in terms of how many people were uh, infected and the way in which the AIDS virus is attacking individuals throughout the, uh, the rest of the world. And we could put up our picture being worth a thousand words. And we can see that a lot of the incidents of AIDS have sort of peaked. It appears to be being held in check right, by our most recent sort of drug combinations to be able to keep the, the virus uh, under control. In terms of the virus itself, we know a lot about the virus, the human immunodeficiency virus. We know that it primarily is going to infect or effect and infect CD4 positive T cells and also macrophages and dendritic cells and lymph nodes. So the virus itself uses CD4 as a receptor. There's also another molecule on the surface of the cell that it uses as a co-receptor. So that's it's how it's going to be able to infect T cells itself because those are the cells that it's going to be able to attack. But macrophages and dendritic cells don't have CD4 on their cell surface, and the virus is going to be incorporated into those cells as their function as phagocytes and professional antigen-presenting cells. Right? So macrophages and dendritic cells are going to be able to phagocytose the HIV virus, and that's how the virus is going to be able to get inside and use macrophages and dendritic cells as hosts for its life functions. It's a retrovirus, and a retrovirus is unlike sort of typical viruses. Typical viruses carry a strand or double-stranded DNA. A retrovirus, as its name implies, is going to be able to reverse that flow. So a retrovirus carries an RNA genome. It carries two identical strands of RNA. And it has to first take that RNA and convert that RNA into DNA, and then it needs to integrate its own DNA into the host DNA. And a reverse trend and a retrovirus is going to be able to use a, uh, a, a protein that it possesses that's called reverse transcriptase. And reverse transcriptase is going to convert RNA into DNA, and then DNA, then like I said, that DNA is going to be integrated into the host DNA. And the reverse transcriptase is the first time we ever saw uh, a molecule like this turning RNA into DNA. And in fact, the characterization of reverse transcriptase is going to lead to a Nobel Prize. And that Nobel Prize was given out in 2009. And it wasn't until some time later that we actually did find molecules like reverse transcriptase in the eukaryotic genome, and it's then uh, you might have heard of the protein, it's a telomerase, right? Telomerase takes RNA and converts it into DNA. And now we know 
that this is the way, the major way in which that this retrovirus is going to be able to infect host cells. So if we sort of look at right, the virus itself in this cartoon, it looks very much like any other sort of virus. It's surrounded by uh, the lipid bilayer that it's going to be able to get as it bursts out of the T cells themselves. It has a caspid inside, and inside are the RNA molecules and the reverse transcriptase that it carries, and it has uh, proteins on the surface, like this GP120, a glycoprotein of 120,000 molecular weight, GP41, a glycoprotein of 41,000 molecular weight, and these are the receptors that are going to be able to bind to CD4. So this is what it looks like in a cartoon, and then this is sort of a, sort of an enhanced right sort of cartoon to be able to look to see what it's looking at. So you can see again as it buds away from the T cell it's going to bring a lot of the host, right, host proteins and host lipid bilayer with it, the, the membrane of the host. And this orange representation here is the GP120 and the GP41 on the surface of the virus itself. So if we keep looking at it, right, it's packed within that core, surrounded by the lipid bilayer derived from the host, right, and it includes virally encoded membrane proteins as well. Those two envelope glycoproteins, GP120 and GP41, are going to be critical for infection. The GP41 binds to CD4 and also a chemokine receptor. CCR5, so CD4 and CCR5 are sort of like co-receptor co proteins that the GP120, GP41 has to bind to. The, the GP120 is going to bind to CD4 and interact with CCR5. When that takes place, a conformational change is going to take place. It's going to expose the GP41 protein, and the GP41 is going to be involved with fusion of the membrane protein, and that's how the virus is going to be able to enter the cell. So if we look at some more pictures, if we're looking at the T cell itself, this is sort of a, not sort of, this is a scanning electron micrograph of a T cell that's been infected. So you can see as all of these sort of intrusions or extrusions Right? They're sort of going from these big ones to all these little small ones. You can sort of see the buds of the, the mature virus as it's leaving the T cell. So clearly this T cell is going to be destroyed, but that is how right, this cellular membrane of the T cell itself, the lipid bilayer, is going to be used by the virus. So that's going to enclose that caspid that's going to contain the RNA and the reverse transcriptase. So clearly this T cell will be destroyed as more and more and more of these virus, these, these mature viruses butt out and leave the T cell. There's not going to be enough cell membrane left, so the T cell is eventually just going to be able to burst. Right. The other part about the virus that you have to realize, and it's going to be critical towards its pathogenicity, is that the replication of the virus itself is going to be stimulated by the same mechanism that promotes growth of the host T cell. So when T cell growth factor, or interleukin-2, is being used by the T cell as a, as a differentiation, not a differentiation, but as a proliferation factor, those same sort of 
proteins that are going to be used, those same transcription factors that are going to be used to be able to turn on interleukin-2, to be able to turn on the interleukin-2 receptor, are going to be used by the virus itself to stimulate the manufacture of its own proteins. So that's what makes getting rid of the HIV virus in the T cells so almost impossible, because the same sort of activation signals that would be required for that T cell to be able to participate in the immune response are the same signals that the virus is going to use for its own manufacture of its progeny. So even though that T cell might be responding, it's still going to stimulate the production of those viral proteins and that's going to destroy the T cell that much faster. So if we're looking at infection itself, the virus hears GP120 interacting with CD4 and also CCR5. When that conformational change takes place, it's going to free up the GP41 for fusion to be able to take place. Once the virus gets inside, as any other virus is in the, in the sort of lifestyle of a virus, the uncoding takes place. Normally, this DNA that's out here is going to be incorporated right into the host DNA, but because it's a, it's a retrovirus, we need to be able to take that RNA with reverse transcriptase, turn it into DNA, so now we'll go to the DNA step. This is going to be integrated and ligated into the, into the host DNA. We're going to start to manufacture viral proteins, right? And these viral proteins and protein synthesis are going to be used to make new mature viruses. They're going to bud out and they're going to go out to infect other sort of uh, cells in the area or other cells in the body. So the same sort of mechanism that we talked about before in terms of a MHC class 1 molecule being able to present viral peptides, right, as more and more of these viral proteins are being made, some of them are going to go into the proteostome. That proteostome is going, to con is going to degrade these and present them on the class, on the MHC class 1 molecules on the surface. But, like we talked about before, one of the things that a virus is going to do is going to downregulate the amount of uh, MHC class 1 on the surface. So, even though we get lots and lots of proteins out here, we're not going to get much of a danger signal or, a, or an alert signal to the rest of the immune response because we're going to down-regulate the amount of CD4 going onto the cell surface. So you got all, this, all these things happening sort of at the same time, which is going to result in, right, basically the immunology of the infection itself. So what we know from an immunological point of view. Normal T-cell counts, we've talked about this before, are about 1,000 T-cells per ml of blood. Here, the T-cell count's going to fall to less than 100 in an ml of blood. The normal ratio, CD4 to CD8, is about 2 to 1. In AIDS, that ratio falls to about 0.5. What that means is we are changing the numerator. We're not doing much of anything to the denominator because the CD8 cells aren't being uh, affected or infected, affected and infected, by the AIDS virus itself, right, by HIV. But as the CD4 number gets smaller and smaller and smaller, that's what turns the ratio into 0.5. So it's clearly the CD4 cells that are taking the brunt of the infection in terms of the way everything is taking place. 
So those CD4 positive T cells are going to die in a, in a whole bunch of different ways. The major way is going to be by lysis caused by viral budding, right? You, could, you saw in that picture that we're, we're using up more and more and more of the cell membrane of that T cell. So eventually lysis is going to occur because the T cell doesn't have any more membrane to surround itself. We also have toxic effects of unregulated viral RNA, right? One of the things that a cell is going to do when it senses double-stranded RNA or DNA of viruses inside the cell, like we talked about when we were looking at interferon alpha and interferon beta, one of the things that the cell is going to do is it's going to uh, turn itself on to cell suicide. It's going to commit suicide because it is going to be able to sense all that buildup of viral RNA inside the, inside the cell itself. The other thing that can take place inside is we're going to start to muck around basically with the protein synthesis machinery and protein degradation because remember, right, there's two separate things going on inside the cell. So the first thing inside the cell is that that T cell is going about its normal business and its normal business is to synthesize and put CD4 onto the cell surface. Right, so that's sort of normal protein synthesis, so it's going to replace those CD4 molecules on the surface. At the same time, the virus is inside and its viral RNA is making GP120. Right? It needs GP120, it needs that envelope protein to be able to complete its own mature virus. So as you're getting GP120 inside the cytoplasm, as you're getting CD4 inside the cytoplasm, they're interacting with each other, they're binding to each other. Right? So you can't pull this CD4 onto the cell surface because it's coupled with GP120, it's not going to make its way to the cell surface. This GP120 can't be part of the mature virus because it's binding to CD4. So you get all this protein built up and build up, the and the cell is going to have to try to degrade it, but it can't, so that's going to get some sort of deleterious effect to the cell itself. And this is also going to inhibit T cell maturation because remember, Right? As those viruses are circulating, or that HIV is circulating, and all those thousands of progeny HIV are circulating inside the body, some of that HIV is going to make its way to the thymus. Some of that HIV is going to start binding to immature cells inside the thymus that are only starting to, to express CD4 on the cell surface. Remember when we talked about the decision that's going to be made for those double positive cells to turn into CD4 positive cells or CD8 positive cells. So those double positive cells and those cells right before they leave the thymus are going to have CD4 on the cell surface. So all those cells are going to be destroyed as well. So we're not going to get a lot of mature cells in the body at any one point in time, right? So all those different things are going to be able to take place. We're going to have severe immunodeficiency from those opportunistic infections that we talked about. We're going to have impaired macrophages and dendritic cell function because those cells are being infected with the virus as their role in uh, as being phagocytes and professional antigen presenting cells. And NK cells can also phagocytose, so they're going to be infected as well. So sort of the entire cellular component, right, between the T cells, the macrophages, and the dendritic cells, right, we're really starting to take out one of the major arms of the immune system. So 
that's going to be able to take place. Lymph node destruction, right? as all those T cells, we've talked about T cells sitting inside the lymph nodes, right? Inside the cortex, inside the medulla, just waiting for antigen to percolate through. That's coming from the lymph fluid, from the outer areas of the body. Right? So as those cells are being infected with HIV and those cells are being lysed and those cells are being destroyed, we're not doing apoptosis anymore, right? If those cells are lysing because the virus is flooding out of them, we're going to start an inflammatory response. So we're going to get a necrotic response. So those lymph nodes can now start to be destroyed as well, right? Because now macrophages are going to come in and we're going to get an, uh, an entire inflammatory response taking place. So if you break down sort of the, the timetable of an HIV infection, right? We're going to go back out here and we're going to look at time equals zero to when uh, an individual is first infected. And we're going to have our timeline come out here, it's going to go out into the years, we're going to have our, right, our, our graph break here again, and that's going to tell us we're going from weeks, in this instance, from weeks to years. If we're looking at right, T-cell counts inside the blood, if we're looking at sort of the virus or the viral load inside the blood, when you first become infected for a few weeks, the T-cells start to drop off, the virus starts to peak inside the, inside the bloodstream, at one point in time, we're going to be able to seroconvert because we're going to start to raise antibodies to the, to the, the HIV uh, virus itself. So once this seroconversion takes place, that's one of the sort of the major sort of roadmaps in the infection itself. The problem is you can become infected with the virus and you don't even know you're infected. So you think, eh, maybe I have a fever, maybe I just don't feel so well. After a certain point in time, the immune system does seem to hold the virus in check. So the viral load starts to fall, the CD4 count rebounds a little bit, it never makes it back up to where it was, but it rebounds a little bit, and then, right, this sort of chronic phase starts to take place. And this chronic phase, in the early days, lasted anywhere up to maybe six or seven years or so. Then something takes place, and people really aren't sure what it is that takes place, after a certain amount of years, maybe the, the, the T-cells become fatigued, but eventually the T-cell count starts to fall off, the viral count starts, or the, the, the amount of virus inside the blood starts to take off, and CD4 count goes back basically to zero, there's a, a, a massive amount of, of virus inside the bloodstream and the patient's going to succumb to the disease. So this is the way it typically sort of works. What we've done in, in, the, in the ensuing years is we've basically taken this axis and sort of stretched it out. Okay? So we've taken this 11 years and we've turned this into 15 years and 20 years and 25 years. Right? We're not having patients enter the terminal phase of the disease anymore, we're sort of holding those patients in the chronic phase. And we're doing that by the drugs that we're using. A couple of the presentations have talked about heart, heart drug therapies, where we're going to use multiple drugs to be able to keep the virus in check. So that's really all we've been doing, right? With all of our technology and all of our 
and uh, all of our science, we haven't been able to eradicate the, 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 the virus itself. So the virus goes into some sort of stasis. Maybe it's, you know, just sort of hiding in macrophages or hiding in dendritic cells. We're really not sure. There's a lot of literature out there to suggest where that virus is doing and what's taking place during the chronic phase. But all we've done is allowed the body to sort of hold its own against the virus by having these really good drug regimes. And we still haven't cured anybody because remember, it's sort of like trying to cure somebody of cancer. You have to get rid of that very last tumor cell. If you just leave one tumor cell inside the body, that tumor cell is going to keep proliferating and proliferating and proliferating. We're going to get more and more and more cancer cells. And the same thing that's going to be able to take place in an HIV patient. All it takes is one macrophage or one dendritic cell to be left that's going to still hold the information, right? It's still going to be encoded in the DNA. That viral DNA is still going to be encoded in the host DNA. And if you don't get rid of that very last cell, right, that patient isn't going to be cured because at any one point in time, this could be able to take place. So a lot of the treatments now, a lot of the research now is sort of geared towards, okay, we're keeping these patients alive, right, and healthy and well for an unlimited amount of time now. How are we going to be able to, quote, unquote, cure those patients? The only way you're going to be able to cure them is to get rid of that last amount of <coughs> HIV DNA out of those cells. So you have to figure out a way to be able to kill those cells and not have any HIV DNA inside those cells anymore. Right? So that's is basically what we're doing. We've just expanded this chronic phase. And there have been experiments, right? There have been AIDS patients who have volunteered, right, to go off of their drug regimens at a certain time. Right? So early on, people thought, oh, okay, if we take sort of this and sort of pull this out, Right? Maybe inside these patients, right, we can see CD4 cells coming up, we can see sort of viral loads sort of tapering off. Maybe we can wean these patients off the drugs. Maybe these patients have successfully destroyed the AIDS virus. And when you do those experiments and you start lowering the doses of the, of the therapy that those individuals are taking, what you start to see is you start to see the CD4 counts starting to fall off. You sort of see the HIV load starting to come back up. And then you have to put those patients right back onto their drug regimen. So it's not like these patients are going to be cured because you're still going to have that very last cell that has that HIV DNA still inside, right? So that's what we have to be able to get rid of. So the infection itself, right, direct sexual contact or by blood products, the virus comes in, the virus is going to start to replicate, it starts to destroy, right, We're going to interact with CD4 positive T cells, right? with CD4 and that other co-receptor, and macrophages are going to be able to phagocytose it. Right? We're still going to be able to make antibodies to it, we're still going to be able to uh, sort of destroy it as it's moving and progressing, but eventually right, it's going to enter this chronic phase and whatever this signal is over here, we're really not quite sure what this signal is to go towards sort of the end of, end of days for these patients themselves, but right, 
that appears to happen. There's some, there's whatever this latency period is, we're not quite sure why it works or how it's working, but it is there for at least right, six or seven years. So that's one of the problems with reporting about the disease, with trying to figure out how many patients have the disease, because people can be infected, right, and it can be years later until they actually right, are going to maybe go to a physician because they don't feel so well. And if that physician does some blood work and they're going to notice that their CD4 counts are falling, right? So it's hard to sort of tell. So somebody who's infected, we might not even know about that infection until seven, eight, nine years later, right, when they're starting to enter this sort of part of the disease. So that's what makes the whole epidemiology of the disease that much harder to be able to come and to, to be able to track. In terms of, right, therapies that leads to sort of the prolonging of that chronic phase, right, AZT, we had a, we had a presentation about AZT. It was the first antiviral agent shown to be beneficial, right, after prolonged use, right, AZT resistant strains are going to be able to develop because they're going to be able to have these random mutations that will overcome the effects of AZT, and that's where the combination therapy has been able to come into place, right? Highly active antiretroviral therapy. H-A-R-T, H-A-A-R-T therapy is basically using one or more antiviral drugs at any one point in time, because if the, if the virus does mutate and it is able to overcome, right, the ability of AZT to be able to keep it in check, any one of these other ones in these combination therapies, and it's usually about three or so of these drugs, we're going to be able to keep it in check, right? So the heart regime normally comprises like two of those nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors and perhaps a protease inhibitor. So we have a whole bunch of these nucleoside analogs, right? The reverse transcriptase inhibitors like AZT and DLL. Right? We have other non-nucleoside of these reverse of these reversed, uh, reverse transcriptase inhibitors, and they basically are going to be able to inhibit a different sort of a mechanism. We have different protease inhibitors or fusion inhibitors. We have some drugs that are going to stop the fusion of GP41 with with the, the membrane and stop the, the 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 virus from fusing and entering the cell. Right. So it's with these heart sort of regimes, right? that's how we've declined in terms of people dying from HIV around the world itself. Okay? The protease inhibitors, we have come to find out that the protease itself, the HIV protease, has a, uh, a mechanism that is unlike any other protease that eukaryotes have is a, a protease, it is able to break proteins down, and we'll talk about you know, how it's going to be able to use this during the development of the disease on its own proteins, but this protease is, has uh, properties that are not shared by any other uh, eukaryotic pro, uh, protease. 
So that's why these inhibitors are going to be able to work. That's why we can add lots and lots of these protease inhibitors to these drug cocktails and not worry about those inhibitors inhibiting any of our proteases because the specificity of that protease is restricted to HIV proteins themselves. Right? So we have all these different things that are going to be able to take place. We have all sorts of uh, inception points or right, points where we're going to be able to intercept the virus. So, as these heart therapies have increased over the years, right, to where we are now, right, in terms of the disease itself, the disease is starting to fall, right? So we've sort of come to a, uh, an impasse with the disease. We're able to keep those patients a longer, uh, patients alive much longer. We still haven't come to figure out a way to destroy the virus totally itself. So, in terms of right, fusion and penetration inhibitors, right, integrase inhibitors. Where's our protease? Our, our proteases are, where's the, where's the, oh, where's the protease inhibitors? I thought, eh. All right, so reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Yeah, this is crazy. They didn't put protease inhibitors? Okay, anyway, so. Right? When we, I know, so where's, where's some proteins here? Some proteins are going to be down here, right? So the protease inhibitors are going to be able to interact with the proteases that are starting to act on HIV proteases to get them ready for assembly into those mature viruses, right? So we have all these different places where we're going to be able to interdict and intercede to be able to destroy and stop the, the, the virus itself from attacking the body. So, that's where we should have been on the other day. And this is, ay, 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 this is where we're going to start today. So, keep talking about the response itself, but let's now start talking more about the immune response itself. So again, right, it's a retrovirus. It reverses the normal flow of genetic information. So instead of going from DNA to protein, right, protein synthesis to mature protein, we got to take that RNA, turn it into DNA, and turn that on so we can continue with protein synthesis itself, right? Some of those single-stranded RNAs are going to go with the new virus, and some of them are going to become DNA, right, using the reverse transcriptase, integrated into host DNA so that the host, so that this DNA is going to be able to hijack those T cells, going to be able to turn those T cells into a viral machine. In the first phase, about 24 hours or so, we're going to be able to start to see short RNA transcripts being produced inside the cell itself. This is going to encode the virus's regulatory proteins. These are the proteins that the virus needs to be able to start the, the takeover of the cell itself. And in the second phase, longer RNA transcripts new viral genome and structural and enzymatic proteins that it's going to be able to need, right, to finish the assembly of those mature viruses and eventually bud out of the cell itself. So the first ones are going to be able to be the proteins that it needs to hijack the cell and then later on the ones it's going to need to escape from the cell, right? So all of this information is going to be there. So, 
right? We're going to integrate, we're going to make those RNAs. Those RNAs are going to be out here to be able to stimulate protein synthesis once the viral proteins have started to be made. And it's sort of interesting in HIV proteins. So the HIV proteins themselves are made on a single transcript. When the ribosomes start to be able to translate and make HIV proteins, all the proteins come out in this one continuous amino acid sort of elongation that's taking place. So you get this big giant protein that's inside, and then that's where the protease is going to be able to come inside, and, it's, and or the protease is going to act on this, this precursor, these protein precursors, and it's going to clip them, and it's going to make those individual proteins themselves, right? So it's not unlike very different than our protein synthesis, where we have individual genes going to make individual proteins. Here, right, these precursors are manufactured that are just, you know, sort of HIV protein, HIV protein, HIV protein, HIV protein, and then the protease cleaves this long precursors into those individual HIV proteins. So that's another reason why this protease is so susceptible to the drugs that we found, because we don't have any sort of mechanism like that in our body, so we don't have to worry about that at all. So, integrate, it integrates, starts to manufacture its proteins. A lot of that RNA, right, is going to be uh, transcribed again to be able to be packed inside. These proteins are going to be assembled onto that, right? These proteins are going to be part of the protein of the caspid and of those envelope proteins. So the caspid is going to start to be manufactured. Things like reverse transcriptase, right? The other proteins are going to be assembled. And as, these pro as the mature virus starts to bud through, it makes its way out and it's going to be able to leave the cell, right? So the hijack will be complete. The hijacking of that cell is going to be complete. The cells themselves, once they become infected with the virus, they're going to produce up to two and a half million copies of that viral RNA, so much so that within three days, almost half of the total cell protein synthesis or the total production of proteins by that T cell is going to be devoted to viral protein production. So that T cell has absolutely turned into a viral factory. The hijacking is complete, and almost all protein synthesis, well, at least half of the protein synthesis is going to go towards making viral proteins. So, nothing really too remarkable about HIV as a retrovirus. Right? There are a whole bunch of other retroviruses out there, and we know a lot about those retroviruses, and HIV fits, you know, bless you, fits well into right, those families of other retroviruses, and all retroviruses, just like HIV, they contain gag proteins, and these are called the group-specific antigens, right, the POL genes, which are the proteases and things like their reverse transcriptase, and envelope genes, and the envelope genes are the genes that are concerned with manufacturing of those proteins that sit on the surface of the retrovirus itself. So all retroviruses, right, this is their makeup, the gag, pro the gag genes, the pol genes, and the envelope genes. What separates HIV is that it has a series of other genes, right, 
and the complexity of these interactions of these other well of these other proteins that these genes are going to be able to manufacture and right the complexity of how these proteins that this HIV virus has manufactured how it's going to sit into the pathogenesis of the virus itself and how those other proteins are going to be able to interact with and counter the ability of the immune system to be able to defeat the HIV virus. Right. So, if we're looking at right, retroviral genomes, the GAG proteins, and they make up those viral nucleocaspid proteins, so, right, nucleocaspid shell protein like P24, P7, P15, and several other internal proteins are all manufactured by the GAG proteins. And these GAG proteins are going to be able to direct the formation of virus-like particles when all of the proteins are absent. So, we have probably every sort of variation on a HIV virus that you can think of by the mutations that we've made and by the deletions that we've made. So if you take an HIV and if you delete all the GAG proteins, right, it's not going to be able to make any of these structural proteins. So if the GAG is non-functional, you get the loss of the ability of the virus, right, to be able to bud out of the cell. Because it's not going to be able to make those Right, those, those caspids, those nuclear shell or those nucleoid shell sort of manufacture of the virus itself. So if that's not made, we're not going to be able to get our RNA into it. We're not going to be able to get our reverse transcriptase into it. And we're not going to be able to bud out of the cell. Right? So that's how we know about the GAG proteins themselves. The PAL proteins, the, right, things like the polymerase, the PAL proteins are going to encode viral DNA and RNA enzymes, so things like the protease, right, different polymerases and the integrase, right, are going to be the proteins of the PAL proteins or the PAL genes themselves. And remember that integrase is the one that cuts the cell's DNA and inserts the HIV into the DNA. And again, it converts, right, like any other retrovirus, it's got to be able to take its RNA, turn it into DNA, so that that integrase is going to be able to use that DNA and incorporate it into the host DNA itself. And then the envelope proteins, right, are the outside protein coats of the virus. So, the GAG proteins are manufacturing, oh, I don't have that picture. Do I have another picture? No, I don't have that. <laughs> right? The GAG proteins are the ones that are making that shell in which the, 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 the membrane is going to wrap around, okay? So if, those, if that shell isn't there, we're not going to be able to be able to take our RNA or our reverse transcriptase with us. If the PAL proteins are deleted, then we're not going to be able to, right, get our DNA into host DNA. So the, it doesn't matter, right? We're not going to have our integrase. We're not going to have our protease. We're not going to have our polymerase. So we have a whole bunch of mutations in the PAL proteins to be able to know exactly what they're doing. And then even if we have all of these regulatory, regular proteins manufacturing what they need to manufacture and we're, and we're putting our DNA inside and we're being, we're being able to make Right, our caspid to be able to pack up all of our mature viruses with. If we don't have our envelope proteins, we're not going to be able to infect new cells. Right? So everything here will be able to take place. 
this will be able to bud out of the cell, but because we don't have our outer protein coat, we're not going to be able to infect any other cells, right? So that's how we've done these experiments, right? By having mutations and by having all these different forms of retroviruses and basically HIV, absolutely HIV, with all of these different sort of genes deleted, right? That's how we've come to realize how all these things are, are taking place. Right? So there's our gag proteins, there's our pile proteins, there's our envelope proteins. We have the 5 prime LTR, long terminal repeat, and the 3 prime LTR. That's how the, these are the signals for which the uh, DNA is going to be able to be inserted into host DNA. Right? So all retroviruses contain these three major genes. HIV itself has these other ones. Right? And it's these other ones that make this gene, that makes this virus so deadly. So what are these other genes? Well, they're basically six unique genes, and clearly, right, we have all sorts of mutations, and we have all sorts of subtypes of the virus itself to be able to know exactly what these genes do. Right? So it was the development of these, of these knockouts to this HIV that we were able to figure out exactly what's taking place. So the first one, or one of the major ones, is the TAT gene, transactivator protein. It's involved with transactivation of all the HIV proteins, right? It's one of those very early genes that are going to be able to be turned on, right? Because this is going to be involved with stimulating those other genes from being manufactured. It removes, the other thing that it does is it removes the IL-7 alpha chain from resting CD8 positive T cells. That's only recently been found. And if it's going to remove that IL-7 alpha chain, right, when we talked about our cytokine receptors, if we remove that alpha chain, then those CD8 cells aren't going to be able to respond to interleukin-7, right, because that's going to be able to not be there anymore. The other gene is the REV gene, right, they have these cool sort of names, differential regulator of expression of virus particles. And it appears to be an RNA binding protein that regulates the expression of virus proteins. Okay? If we knock out the REV gene, this is what we're going to be able to see. We don't see clear expression of these other proteins that's going to be able to take place, right? It increases the synthesis of HIV structural proteins later on in the disease. So as we're making those, those caspid proteins and we're making all those other proteins that are going to be encasing the RNA in the reverse transcriptase, that's where the REV genes are being manufactured and that's how they're being able to come online. We have the VIF genes virus infect infectivity factor, and up until a couple of years ago, right, this VIF gene, the description of this VIF gene was, and it's also involved somehow with the manufacture of HIV proteins, right? It's not until the last two or three years that we have come to find out exactly what VIF does. And what it does is, VIF counters a very powerful antiviral factor that we didn't know about three years ago. 
It's one of the one of the proteins that is being stimulated, right? When we talk about interferon alpha and interferon beta, it's one of the proteins that's being stimulated by interferon alpha and interferon beta. And what it does is, it's a cytidine deaminase that's going to change, right, the the cytosine to uracil in the viral RNA, and it's there to be able to stop right, viral RNA from taking over the cell. We had no idea about ApoBEC3G, right? the whole name itself is ApoLipoprotein B mRNA editing enzyme catalytic polypeptide like 3G. <sighs> right? Again, it is basically one of the founding members of, well, we're going to call it a, a, A3G from now on, right? So it's one of the founding members of this new group of proteins we had no idea about before. It's one of the more powerful antiviral factors that we didn't know about that we've only discovered because we found that that's what VIF is binding to. That's what VIF is attacking, right? If it's so important that the HIV virus needs its own protein to be able to attack it, it must be a pretty powerful antiviral protein, and it is. And with more studies, like I said, we've now found that it's one of the major proteins that's going to be induced when interferon alpha and interferon beta induce that antiviral state in, right, in surrounding cells, right, cells that haven't been infected yet. So one of the major things that interferon alpha and interferon beta is going to do, it's going to stimulate A3G on surrounding cells. So that's what VIF is there for, to be able to get rid of that, to be able to destroy what's going on there. When it comes to NEF, negative regulatory factor, right, before we, we even knew what it was, we knew that it was somehow right, involved with regulation, and what NEF is doing, it's going to increase the rate of CD4 degradation. Too much CD4 on the cell surface is going to inhibit HIV, re HIV release from the cell. You would think, right, that why would the protein, or why would the virus need, why would the virus want to be involved with getting rid of CD4 on the surface of the cell, right? It's getting rid of CD4 on the surface of the cell, so as it buds out, that GP20 isn't going to be interacting with it, right? So we're not going to get any of those, right, any of those... Uh, interactions between CD4 as it's uh, between CD4 on the surface of the cell and GP120 as it's leaving the cell right because we don't want that virus to re-enter the cell there's no need for that virus to re-enter the cell for those mature viruses to re-enter so we're going to down regulate the amount of CD4 on the cell surface so that our our mature viruses are going to have free passage outside of the cell and the other thing it does, it's going to decrease, or it's involved with, decreasing the amount of class 1 MHC on the cell surface. Right? We said that was one of the major things that viruses are going to do, turn off class 1 MHC on the cell surface to be able to stop CD8 positive T cells from interacting with it. Right? But the NK cells are still going to be able to be there as well. VPU. Virus protein U, right? Now we're getting into the sort of the land of the, we're really not sure what these proteins do, right? So it doesn't have this cool name, it's just virus protein U. And what VPU is involved with is it's going to help increase the level of HIV released from the cell surface, okay? 
And now, a couple of years ago, that's all we had up here. That's all we knew about VPU. But now we have this other new protein. And what we do know about VPU is it's going to promote viron release due to the down regulation of a whole brand new protein that we didn't even know about before that's called tetherin. Tetherin is brand new, just like A A3G is brand new. We had no idea about tetherin. What tetherin does is it gets its name, I guess, from right when you tether people together. Right? When you go mountain climbing, everybody's all tied together. So if one person falls into the crevasse or one person starts falling off the side of the mountain, everybody else is there to sort of help them. Right? So you'll be able to see that. And that's what tetherin does. Tetherin targets virus particles and it basically holds them. It won't let them go. Right? So as this particle is, is budding out of the cell, it's going to interact with these tetherin molecules and tetherin on the surface of this budding uh, of, of this budding virus of this mature virus budding out and tetherin that's still left on the surface or even tetherin on the surface of right a mature virus is going to be able to not go anywhere right because we're going to lock it into place with tetherin then it's going to be able to be come back inside and it's going to be able to be degraded. Right? So we had no idea about tetherin before. We had no idea about this antiviral mechanism right? until we sort of figured out what VPU was there and what VPU was getting involved with. So this tethering is a new way that we're going to be able to maybe come up with new therapeutic moieties if we can stimulate more and more tethering. Right? So here's tethering interacting with individual virus particles themselves. So we're just holding it on to right? either the virus particles themselves into one big sort of clump of virus particles or right, we're holding them onto the cell surface itself and not allowing them to escape. Right? We had no idea what VPU was doing. Well, we knew what it was doing, but we had no idea about this whole new area right, of antiviral responses brought about by tetherin. Right, so, now we're back to VPR. Right, a couple of years from now, I'll probably be talking to people about exactly what VPR does, but for today, we have no idea what it does. Right? Somehow, it facilitates HIV's ability to infect non-dividing cells. It's going to induce G2 to, to M arrest. Right? And uh, then the ability of that to be important for right, the etiology of the disease itself. Oh, holy moly. Well, that's right. I guess with Alexia not being here, people aren't shuffling off to, to neurobiology today. All right, so. Uh, we'll talk. Well, maybe we'll talk about this later. Maybe not. Right. So Monday I'm going to lecture again because if people are traveling and they're not going to make it back on time, so I'll see you again on Monday. Enjoy your holiday. Hope you get the Black Friday deal that you're looking for. Right. See you back here on Monday. Hey.